You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marveled at the golden face of Tutankhamun? Or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of ancient Egypt. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode number 253 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich, and unfortunately, Tracy won't be with us today. Uh, she had to go into school today and do some work, so that means you guys are stuck with just me for this show. I know, I know. Um, but this week we're actually talking about something pretty interesting, or at least we think it's pretty interesting. Uh, as you guys will recall, when last we left the Army of the Potomac, it was after the defeat at Fredericksburg in December 1862 and the debacle of the Mud March in January. And then on January 25th, 1863, Fighting Joe Hooker replaced Ambrose Burnside as commander of the Army of the Potomac. So we could have picked back up with the story right there, but we realized that in order to really understand what had been happening with the Army of the Potomac, what was happening in that army, and what will happen with the Army of the Potomac, we needed to take a bit of time to talk about what Stephen Sears calls the General's Revolt. Sears writes that, quote, the general's revolt was an amorphous sort of thing, ill-defined and hard to pin down, but for some ten months it was always there, lurking somewhere in the dark corners of the army. The participants varied, shifting and changing. Sometimes it could be dismissed as just loose talk. At other times it seemed genuinely threatening. Yet however difficult it might be to define, the revolt of the generals is something to be reckoned, for it reshaped one campaign and was instrumental in the dismissal of two commanding generals of the Army of the Potomac. Sears points out that the seeds of the general's revolt can be found in mounting discontent rather than actual revolt in the aftermath of the Union defeat on the peninsula and the disaster at Second Bull Run. Certain generals and quite a few staff officers were heard to grumble ever more openly about interference from Washington. The Army of the Potomac, they said, was not being allowed to manage its own affairs. 
Calls for reinforcements were ignored. Correct strategies were derailed by inept civilians. Political pressure for abolition and confiscation demoralized both officers and men. Well, this, of course, was Major General George McClellan's message to his supporters in the Democratic Party on the Northern Home Front during the summer of 1862. And Little Mac's disciples among his lieutenants, particularly Fitzjohn Porter, helped him ensure that Democratic anti-administration newspapers spread that message. Taking all of this in were impressionable young hotheads on the headquarters staff. Their disgruntlement reached its peak after the Battle of Antietam. In fact, their grumblings grew loud enough to reach the ears of the president. And so this phase of the General's Revolt, if at this point it could be called that, culminated with the dismissal of one Major John Key. By the way, Major Key's brother, Colonel Thomas Key, served on McClellan's staff. At any rate, when someone in the War Department had asked Major Key why Little Mac hadn't bagged the rebel army at Antietam, Key explained that, quote, That is not the game. The object is that neither army shall get much advantage of the other, that both shall be kept in the field till they are exhausted, when we shall make a compromise and save slavery. When word of this novel theory of war-making reached Lincoln's ears, he called Major Key to the White House on September 27, 1862, and questioned him. That interview resulted in Lincoln declaring, quote, In my view, it is wholly inadmissible for any gentleman holding a military commission from the United States to utter such sentiments as Major Key is proved to have done. Therefore, let Major John J. Key be forthwith dismissed from the military service of the United States. Lincoln later explained to his secretary, John Hay, that I dismissed Major Key for his silly, treasonable talk because I feared it was staff talk and I wanted to make an example. And indeed, Lincoln's action was an unmistakable signal to the officers of the Army of the Potomac. It was a warning that the officer corps of the Army wasn't going to pursue any game that was contrary to the military policy of the administration as long as Mr. Lincoln had anything to say about it. And the key affair was proof that the president would definitely have his say. This all was probably on McClellan's mind as he pondered what stand he should take in regard to Lincoln's announcement of the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation. Emancipation was too radical a step for the general, but now he dared not make a public statement openly critical of the president's move, since that would only seem to confirm the army was simply fighting for a compromise that would preserve slavery. And so finally, Little Mac settled for issuing a general order reminding the army that the only remedy for political error was action at the polls. Well, as we all know, McClellan's restraint in that matter, when set on the scales, 
wasn't enough to overcome his continued abysmal performance as a field commander. And when Abraham Lincoln's patience with Little Mac finally reached an end in early November, the president sacked him and gave command of the Army of the Potomac to Major General Ambrose Burnside. Scarcely a month after McClellan's dismissal, there boiled up a full-fledged general's revolt aimed at bringing him back to command. But in addition to this newly energized uprising, there was, and had been for some time, also a single general's revolt seething within the army. This singular rebellious officer was Joe Hooker, who was convinced that the only general fully capable and qualified to lead the Army of the Potomac was Joe Hooker. Ever since the Peninsula Campaign, Hooker had been lobbying for the Army's top post by undermining McClellan at every opportunity. He told a supporter in Congress that McClellan, quote, is not only not a soldier, but he does not know what soldiership is. And in testimony before the Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War, where he proved to be a great favorite, Hooker claimed that on the peninsula, immediately after the fight at Williamsburg, had Little Mac had an ounce of backbone, the army could have marched straight into Richmond, quote, without another gun being fired. Hooker increased his sniping at McClellan after Antietam. Hooker had been wounded in the foot during the battle and convalesced in Washington, where the president and members of the cabinet called on him. To them, Hooker was generous with his advice about how the war ought to be conducted. Hooker's Washington campaign seemed to be progressing nicely, and the betting in the Army's officer ranks had him as the front-runner to replace Little Mac should that momentous event ever come to pass. Before long, the newspapers were on the story. On October 22nd, the New York Express announced the rumor that the cabinet had unanimously, quote, resolved to remove McClellan and that Hooker should succeed him, end quote. And Hooker himself expressed confidence that the Army command would soon be his. But, as we know, when the President finally sacked Little Mac, he gave command of the Army of the Potomac to Ambrose Burnside. Hooker was certain that General-in-Chief Henry Halleck had blackballed him, since there was bad blood from before the war between the two men. But while Halleck certainly opposed Hooker's elevation, there's no evidence that influenced Lincoln's decision to give the Army to Burnside instead. It's more likely Lincoln was turned off by the amount of brazen salesmanship and shameless politicking in Hooker's Washington campaign. In any case, as for Hooker, since he thought even less of Burnside than he did of McClellan, he still believed his turn at Army Command would come, and that it would come sooner rather than later.
The debacle at Fredericksburg in December 1862 set off the revolt of the generals in full cry. With the exception of Joe Hooker's individual efforts, this was the first time that the dissident's aim was actually to unseat the army's commanding general. Fredericksburg wasn't the Army of the Potomac's first defeat, but it was the first defeat to be so clearly a major disaster and so obviously blamable. McClellan had managed, well, at least to the satisfaction of the officer corps, to excuse away the reverses during the seven days' battles and to shift responsibility and lay blame on shoulders other than his own. At Second Bull Run, John Pope and Irvin McDowell were the handy scapegoats, and both were now gone from the army. But the magnitude and utter futility of the bloody disaster at Fredericksburg left Ambrose Burnside with nowhere to hide. Nor did he even try. In a statement that he made certain was distributed to the newspapers, he took full responsibility for the defeat. This was admirable, but it didn't enhance his credibility among his fellow generals, since to admit poor generalship was no way to rebuild support for his leadership among his lieutenants after the defeat. The commander of the Washington defenses confided to his diary, quote, There is no confidence in General Burnside in that army. I am not surprised when he publishes to the country that he had no confidence in his abilities to command so large an army. Within the Army of the Potomac, leadership of the anti-Burnside cabal was taken in hand by two of the Army's more senior generals, Major Generals William Franklin and William F. Smith. Franklin headed one of the Army's three grand divisions, and Baldy Smith led the Sixth Corps under Franklin. After Fredericksburg, Franklin and Smith concluded that everything about Burnside's leadership was wrong. But instead of taking their complaints to the commanding general, as Army protocol dictated, they went over Burnside's head to Washington. On December 20th, a week after the defeat at Fredericksburg, Franklin and Smith together signed a long letter to the president that called for the Army of the Potomac to abandon the line along the Rappahannock River and return to the peninsula, where McClellan had campaigned unsuccessfully for five long months. It was clear enough by implication that Burnside, as the architect of the recent disaster at Fredericksburg, should not lead this return to the peninsula. Franklin and Smith clearly knew that the most popular choice to replace Burnside in command of any new campaign would be the deposed McClellan. Baldy Smith would later say that whatever McClellan's failings, quote, he never was so mediocre as any of his successors, even at their highest. As you guys well know, though, Abraham Lincoln had never been a fan of McClellan's peninsula plan, since he favored the simpler and more straightforward approach of challenging the rebel army along the direct line of march between Washington and Richmond. And in his reply to the two dissident generals, 
Lincoln nixed any idea of returning to the peninsula. Then, on December 29th, Burnside issued orders for an advance to begin on 12 hours' notice, and it became clear to Franklin and Smith that their scheme to change the line of campaign wasn't working. They would have to try something else to thwart Burnside, something that was more direct, yet at the same time disguised their own roles in the affair. They also had to act quickly, and so the next morning, two generals from their command were hurried off to Washington to carry out their secret bidding. The two officers were Brigadier General John Newton, who commanded a division in Smith's Sixth Corps, and whose father had served almost thirty years in Congress, and Brigadier General John Cochran, a Democratic political general from New York, who had served two terms in Congress. He led a brigade in Newton's division. Cochran's and Newton's purpose in going to Washington now was to rid the Army of the Potomac of Ambrose Burnside, and then, if all went well, to see him replaced by George McClellan. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Stephen Sears writes, quote, Generals Franklin and Smith would later profess ignorance or forgetfulness of the Newton-Cochran mission. However, for a general of division and a general of brigade in the 6th Corps to head off to Washington with the army under marching orders had obviously required their superior's permission. 
and with equal certainty, undertaking such a bold mission as theirs would hardly have occurred spontaneously to these two officers. Make no mistake, Newton and Cochrane were where they were on December 30th because the two ringleaders of the general's revolt had instructed them and sent them on their way. Once in Washington, Cochrane used his political acquaintance with Secretary of State William Seward to obtain an appointment with the president. With Newton in tow, he hurried to the White House. Once there, Newton, a senior officer, took the lead. Since he could be court-martialed and cashiered, if it appeared he was conspiring to have his commanding general relieved, which is precisely what he was doing, Newton attempted to tiptoe around the subject by reporting that the troops under Burnside's command were terribly demoralized, and another campaign like the last one would result not only in another defeat, but the destruction of the army. Well, Lincoln soon enough saw through Newton's beating around the bush and confronted him with the fact that it looked like they were there to stab Burnside in the back and to suggest somebody to replace him as commander of the Army of the Potomac. At that point, Cochrane stepped in and assured Lincoln that they had come with only the best of intentions with regard to the Army and to the government. Well, Cochrane's words must have soothed the President's ruffled feathers because Cochrane noted that Lincoln, quote, resumed his ordinary manner. The President almost certainly realized it was Franklin and Smith who had sent the two generals to Washington, and what Lincoln seems to have taken away from their visit to the White House was that after the defeat at Fredericksburg, Burnside had completely lost the support of his lieutenants. Lincoln would have realized that of Franklin, Hooker, and Old Bull Sumner, the Army's three Grand Division commanders, only Sumner could be counted on to support Burnside. Hooker had made no secret of his attitude toward Burnside, and now Franklin had revealed his true colors. And if at least three of the principal generals in Franklin's command were following his lead, then that strongly suggested a growing rot within the Army's high command. And so at 3.30 that afternoon of December 30th, shortly after Newton and Cochran left the White House, a message was sent by the War Department Telegraph Office to Ambrose Burnside. It read, I have good reason for saying you must not make a general movement of the Army without letting me know. And it was signed, A. Lincoln. As we related previously on the podcast, Ambrose Burnside was thunderstruck when he received that message from Lincoln. The preliminary moves for the new operation had already begun, but Burnside telegraphed that he would call a halt to the movement and come up to Washington the next day to meet with the president. His aborted battle plan had called for a crossing of the Rappahannock downstream from Fredericksburg while a feint was conducted upstream, and a major cavalry raid took place to the south 
to cut Lee's communications with Richmond. The cancellation of this plan, as Stephen Sears points out, was, quote, the first bitter fruit of the revolt of the generals. On December 31st, Burnside met with Lincoln in the White House and was astonished to learn that two of his generals, the president wouldn't tell him their names, had been there just the day before and predicted defeat and disaster if the army should be taken into a new battle. Burnside defended his plan for the new operation, but said that if his generals had so lost confidence in him, then it was best he resign his command. However, Lincoln asked him to return the next day, and they would discuss the whole matter. New Year's Day, 1863, may have been something of a high point for Abraham Lincoln, with his signature putting the Emancipation Proclamation into effect. But it was a dark day for the Army of the Potomac, since at Lincoln's meeting that morning with Burnside, Halleck, and Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, nothing of substance was decided upon. And Burnside, and also Halleck, before the day was over, offered their resignations, both of which the President refused to accept. For good measure, Burnside also told Halleck and Stanton that he believed neither of them held the confidence of the army or the country any longer. Well, not surprisingly, under that dark cloud, the ensuing discussion of Burnside's plan of campaign went nowhere. When Burnside returned to his headquarters at Falmouth, across the river from Fredericksburg, he was at the same time furious and bewildered. It seemed he was the victim of a conspiracy, but he didn't know which way to turn to fight it. He did, almost compulsively, relate his experience in Washington to just about every senior officer in the army, including showing his letter of resignation which the president had returned to him. Again, this wasn't the sort of behavior designed to inspire confidence in him with his subordinates, and William Franklin and Baldy Smith, having successfully derailed Burnside's plan for a new battle, now went about promoting their scheme for an alternate strategy and at the same time recruiting allies to unseat the commanding general. Joe Hooker, though, refused to join with the Franklin-Smith gang to seek Burnside's overthrow. He preferred to go his own way, with confidence in his personal goal. He would, of course, be as happy as any, any of them to see Burnside removed, but Hooker wanted Burnside's replacement to be Joe Hooker rather than George McClellan. Hooker was also a good deal more open and candid about his ambition than Franklin and Smith and their fellow conspirators were about theirs. He consistently made his case against Burnside out loud to anyone who would listen. The roiling discontent, the infighting and intrigue within the Army of the Potomac were widely leaked to the newspapers, further poisoning the atmosphere at Burnside's headquarters and in Washington. And it was inevitable that the poisons being generated in the Army's high command would filter down into the attitudes of the rank-and-file soldiers.
the combination of recent battlefield defeat and ongoing concern over incompetence in the handling of the army was having a ruinous effect on morale. As confidence in their generals plummeted, the men poured out their worries and fears in letters to families and to hometown newspapers. The number of desertions from the army skyrocketed. Against this growing storm, Burnside stubbornly lowered his head and ordered yet another offensive movement. Convinced that his most recent plan had by now been compromised, Burnside decided to march the whole army upstream for a crossing of the Rappahannock at Banks Ford in an attempt to flank the rebel army. When Burnside announced his intentions, the protests of his generals were immediate and forceful, but the beleaguered army commander wouldn't listen. The order for the advance was confirmed. Joe Hooker vented to William Swinton, a reporter for the New York Times. According to Swinton, Hooker, quote, talked very openly about the absurdity of the movement, denounced the commanding general as incompetent, and the president and government in Washington as imbecile and played out. Nothing would go right, he said, until we had a dictator, and the sooner the better. End quote. And so, it had become virtually open rebellion in the Army of the Potomac's high command. And Mother Nature now piled on, multiplying Burnside's woes in the form of a brutal nor'easter, with the result that the movement upstream turned into the infamous Mud March. The whole operation sank miserably in a sea of mud. Finally, Burnside recognized the futility of it all, and ordered the army to return to its camps around Falmouth. The failure of the movement and the wretched conditions naturally led to an increase in the grumbling and conspiring, and Burnside decided to stamp out this revolt of his generals for good. By now, Ambrose Burnside had learned the identity of the two generals who had visited the White House resulting in the scuttling of the plan for his earlier offensive. And the leadership of the revolt was also becoming clear to him. And he had received word of Hooker's rant as well. Armed with all of this information, and in a foul mood, on January 23rd, Burnside composed General Order Number 8. In this remarkable document, the first target on Burnside's list was fighting Joe Hooker, declaring Hooker, quote, guilty of unjust and unnecessary criticisms of the actions of his superior officers and of the authorities, end quote. Hooker was dismissed from the service. Bully Brooks, a divisional commander, had been arrested earlier for insubordination, and now he was also cashiered. So were Newton and Cochran. Franklin, Smith, and Bull Sumner's chief of staff, Colonel Joseph Taylor, were relieved of their duties with the Army in order to report to Washington. 
Warming to his task, Burnside added two additional officers for reassignment, although he later admitted their inclusion was a mistake. But he was thus ordering out of the Army of the Potomac two of his three Grand Division Commanders, one Corps Commander, two Division Commanders, and one Brigade Commander. Burnside told his adjutant to issue General Order No. 8, but someone pointed out that such dismissals were subject to the President's approval. And so, with that reminder, Burnside telegraphed Lincoln and said he was coming to Washington with, quote, some very important orders, and I want to see you before issuing them. At the White House the next day, January 24th, Ambrose Burnside presented the President with two documents, General Order No. 8 and his resignation. The General said it was not his intention to challenge the President, but he could no longer command the Army with these officers in it. Either they must go, or the President had to accept his resignation. Lincoln told Burnside he wanted to consult with his advisors and asked him to return the next day. That evening, at a White House reception, Lincoln heard about Hooker's remarks that the administration was imbecile and played out, and what the country needed and soon was a dictator. The President sighed and acknowledged that Hooker talked badly. But nevertheless, the following morning, January 25th, when Lincoln met first with Stanton and Halleck, he explained briefly the choice Burnside had given him, then told them that Joe Hooker was to be the new commander of the Army of the Potomac. The President didn't ask for the two men's advice or invite discussion. When Burnside arrived and was informed of Lincoln's decision, he was no doubt relieved. After all, he had never believed himself qualified for Army command. The President refused Burnside's resignation, granted him a 30-day leave, and promised him a new posting befitting his rank. Sears writes that, quote, The revolt of the generals must be credited with two major successes. The dissidents were wholly responsible for blocking Burnside's December 30th battle plan. Then, within less than a month, they were so successful in undermining confidence in the commanding general that he was goaded into military self-immolation. Where Franklin and Smith failed, of course, was in dictating or influencing the choice of Burnside's successor. In the matter of McClellan, the cabal quite misread the signs, and so the conspirators had to suffer Joe Hooker in command. As Sears points out, neither William Franklin nor Baldy Smith profited from their efforts. On the same day that Hooker took over, Franklin was relieved of Grand Division Command. He would subsequently serve in the Western Theater without notable success, and then would spend the last year of the war awaiting orders. Baldy Smith also went west, came back east in 1864, but also sat out the last year of the war awaiting orders that would never arrive. 
John Newton stayed on with the Army of the Potomac through Chancellorsville and Gettysburg, but then was transferred west. Cochran resigned from the Army just a month after Hooker took command and returned to politics in New York. As for Joe Hooker, Abraham Lincoln went out of his way to warn his new Army commander how much he disapproved of the unbounded ambition Hooker had displayed in undermining Burnside. Lincoln pledged his administration's support, but he told Hooker that while Burnside had commanded the army, quote, You have taken counsel of your ambition and thwarted him as much as you could, in which you did a great wrong to the country. I have heard, in such a way as to believe it, of your recently saying that both the army and the government needed a dictator. Of course, it was not for this, but in spite of it, that I have given you the command. Only those generals who gain successes can set up dictatorships. What I now ask of you is military success, and I will risk the dictatorship. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Fighting Joe Hooker by Walter H. Hebert. If you want to do some digging into the life story of the Army of the Potomac's new commander, then this is the biography for you. And don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations in one handy list at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.com. As I'm putting a bow on this episode and wrapping it up, I do want to take a second to give a shout out to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, Steve and Karen, and Dan. Thanks, y'all. Okay, I'm going to keep this here at the end short and sweet, since by now I'm sure you're tired of hearing just my voice and you're hoping just like I am, that Tracy will be back next week. So here I'll just say thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Take care, everyone. Bye. Bye.